Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 183. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Freaky Magazine. Hey kids, have you read Freaky? The magazine of weird humor for freaks like you. Freaky Magazine is a way out collection of weirdo comics, kooky gags, photo funnies, social satire, and surreal collage. 52 pages of insanity in the tradition of magazines of yore like Cracked, Plop, and Zap. Special offer for Fun Ideas listeners. Get a free sample copy in the mail. Made of smelly newsprint and smudgy ink the old-fashioned way. Just message your mailing address to theslowpoisoner at gmail.com. That's theslowpoisoner at gmail.com while supplies last. Dennis the Menace, originally a comic trick panel introduced in 1951, expanded into a comic book series, an American television series starring Jay North, an animated television series, and subsequent television series, books, and feature films. There's even a chapter on the British version of Dennis the Menace and Dennis' longtime association with Derek Green and his playground. Pocket Full of Dennis the Minutes by Mark Arnold and Fun I Did Productions explores the entire history of Dennis the Minutes and is available now on Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store, based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by PopOptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order and you'll receive a free bonus gift. As the pandemic is now lifting somewhat, I am making more personal appearances at shows in Oregon and California. Check my Facebook page as to where I might be next, usually working with Lee's Comics. I'm getting closer to finishing my Mad and my Turtles books. Another Monkeys book is on the horizon, as well as a book about TV animation studios. And look for more articles from me in Back Issue, Alter Ego, and Hogan's Alley, and various guest appearances on other podcasts, including those by Ed Rising, Hudson Ranney, Dennis Ball, Phil Hall, and others. My Pac-Man book is my latest release. Look for my Disney book and my Warren Kremer book coming soon. On today's show, we have an animation historian here to discuss his book, The Art and Inventions of Max Fleischer. Here he is, Ray Pointer. 
Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast. And today we have a guest that is a writer, animator, uh, done various other things, a film distributor, I believe, uh, uh, restorer, many other roles. You can clarify that when we talk to him. This is Ray Pointer. How are you today, sir? Well, surviving a uh, Labor Day weekend. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't labor. No. Um, this will be up later than Labor Day, but, you know, hey, you know, I don't care if people know when we record it. Yeah, it'll probably be up in about a month, <laughs> so I'm a little bit ahead, but that's okay. Um, so, uh, usually what I do, I mean, I obviously know you're like the Fleischer guy. I put uh, the Max Fleischer image behind me uh, from your book, which I'll relay it now, is The Art and Inventions of Max Fleischer. If you don't have this book, go get it now. And... Um, just wanted to know, I mean, you've worked in the industry, you've done a lot of different things. How, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got your start and your interest in Fleischer and in animation. Well, I can blame my mother for that because I was of the first generation where all these old theatricals were being shown on television. And my mother got me started watching the Out of the Inkwell films that would start at seven o'clock in the morning. And it made such an impression on me that I think that cultivated an interest in drawing because of the magical things that came off on the pen and Max Fleischer would be on there and he would draw the things and they would either come off from the pen or come out of the ink bottle or variations of the same theme. And then eventually he would interact with the drawings that would come off from the page and come into reality. And I was fascinated by those things. And I was so fascinated by it that I had a dream and I dreamt that I got out of bed as usual and out of Inkwell was on television. <laughs> so I wanted to get in closer and, and get in on the action. So I stepped through the television screen like Alice through the looking glass. <laughs> and I was suddenly in a black and white world. And it was in Max Fleischer's office. It was rather nondescript, a bare floor and everything, but there was a wooden teacher's desk and he was seated in a captain's chair. He was wearing a herring bone tweed uh, suit with a vest. And he stopped what he was doing and he pivoted over and picked me up. And he said, well, Ray, I'm glad you came to visit me. Now, come on over here. And he picked me up and sat me on his lap. And he showed me his drawing equipment, his celluloid triangle, his T-square, his drawing board, and his curl quill pen. And then there was a great big ink bottle. It was maybe five, 10 times the size of a normal one. Right. And he brought that out and he said, now Ray, I'm gonna bring out the ink bottle and the clown's gonna come out. He took the stopper off and Coco stuck his head out, rubbed his eyes and looked around. He saw me duck down with a little splash. I wanted to see the clown. So I went to reach forward and as I brought the ink bottle forward, it kind of caught on the desk and it tipped and there was a splash of ink and Max jumped up in a reflex and dropped me and I'd fallen out of bed. One foot tangled up in the quilt, sort of like Little Nemo in Slumberland yeah. at the end of those. And I'll tell you something, I continued to watch those cartoons, but it was sort of like this, you know, yeah, this is nice, I'm glad when it's over with, you know. And I had a phobia about black ink for many years. Wow. <laughs> Any other color ink like blue or anything like that was fine. It wasn't until I was in high school, I finally realized why I hated lettering because I was using that India ink that smelled like rotten eggs. Mm. 
<laughs> and once I recalled that dream, then I got over that. But here is what's strange about that. I was a preschooler. I think I had, hadn't quite turned five yet. But when I was 11, I started experimenting with animation. And then after about two or three years, my, my dad, who uh, my dad appeared in a Jam Handy film called uh, the, uh, the, the, the Mail Flow. Mm. And uh, the main post office downtown at uh, Michigan Central, where he was for 10 years, they tested the first automatic sorting systems for mail systems. And he was in that film. Hmm. So he had the knowledge of, of Jam Handy and, and of course the Jam Handy films because they made a lot of them for service training and so forth. And so they were the big industrial film producer in the Detroit area. Of course, we had four major studios there, but they were the biggest mm -hmm. because of their connections to General Motors. So he said to me, you ought to have the people at Jam Handy see what you've done. And I figured, well, probably eventually, but I, I didn't think I was ready to show what I had yet. Mm -hmm. So I had graduated junior high. This was in 1967. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a letter to them. And a few days later, I got a reply. And so they asked me to come down for an interview the following Tuesday. So I came down that afternoon and uh, I was finishing an animated version of The Wizard of Oz that I started when I was 12. I did it with cutouts and manipulated with layers of glass to have three-dimensional effects and natural shadows and that sort of thing. <clears throat> and that sort of thing was uh, inspired by the 3D backgrounds that you saw in the Popeye cartoons because I always wanted to figure out how they did that. So I was trying in some way to do that effect as well. Mm -hmm. And so I was showing the film in the camera room to the manager, Bob Kennedy. And I had my sound on tape and people started drifting in because they were hearing the sound, they're wondering what's going on. And the next thing you know, I had a full house standing in the back room and I figured, well, this is nice, you know. They're laughing and applauding in all the right places. And that's quite reassuring. It's letting you know, I must've done something right, you know. Mm -hmm. And so later on when the lights came on, there were these two short square shaped men that were standing in front. Now, I hadn't quite had my adult growth yet, but they were shorter than me. They came up like to my shoulders. Hmm. And so I was introduced to these two gentlemen. One of them was Frank Goldman, who invented the three-hole punch system for animation registration, mm -hmm. and his very best friend, Max Fleischer. Wow. <laughs> and the dream had come full circle 10 years later. And Max was so fascinated by what I had already shown at that point. And I knew, certainly knew who he was. It had been years. He was, he was quite elderly, and it was obvious that he'd been ill for many years. Mm -hmm. So frankly, if they hadn't introduced me to him, I might not have recognized him, but mm -hmm. I realized the connection. Mm -hmm. He spent 20 minutes talking to me, mm -hmm. asking me how I thought of these ideas. I said, but Mr. Fleischer, I was inspired by your Popeye cartoons. And I always tried to figure out how they, how you did that. And so I was going to try to find my way of doing the same thing because I thought it would be great to have a longer format film using that technique. Right. And he was just so encouraging. And he said, asked me, how long have you been doing this? And I said, well, for about maybe three or four years. He said, my dear young man, you have accomplished far more in those three or four years than it would take us 10 years to train people. Hmm. 
Francisco. That was quite a tremendous thing. And of course, I realized I had an awful lot to learn, but that is 20 minutes I will always remember for the rest of my life. And that was 55 years ago. <laughs> Don't so I know? That's, that's summer, when I was born. <laughs> yeah. So during that summer that I was there, I started picking up on these anecdotes because there were people still around there that remembered when Max was there and it had only been maybe 11 or 12 years since he had been there, you know, mm -hmm. and so their, their memories were still fresh. And so I figured somebody needs to document this information because it's never been in books. And so that was sort of the beginning. So I started to document these anecdotes that I was given. I got a lot of information from, from Frank Goldman. And he also sent me some letters that were just chock full of a lot of information that, that had to be documented. And so then when I started college in 1970, I started in full force to do the formal research. Hmm. And I went to the main library, which was right off campus. And the fortunate thing was that they had a patent room. So I went through and I looked up all of Max's patents and read through them and made copies of them. And I looked up every periodical that you could possibly find that was available at that time. Right. <laughs> and after two years, I had exhausted all the available material. I figured, isn't there more? Hmm. But again, at that time, you were in the old Dewey Decimal System, you know, the card catalog and everything like that. <laughs> and that's about all that you had available. And so my vision at that time was to do a documentary. Well, it mm -hmm. turned out that my concept was probably beyond the scope of what Wayne State was capable of doing at that time. But I had the idea of going on to the pre-PBS version of educational television that used to be called National Educational Television, NET. Yep. And we had a tie-in with uh, WTVS then at that time. So after two years, it seemed like my, the scope of my project was beyond their realization. So I figured, well, I've got all this information, maybe I should write a book. Mm -hmm. Well, in September of 1972, Max passed away. Right. So a month afterward, I was put in contact with Max's daughter. Uh, Max's son, Richard, I'd written to him and he put me in touch with his sister, Ruth, because mm -hmm. she had a great deal of information because she worked in the studio. And she was married to Seymour Nitell, who everybody knows from Popeye cartoons and famous studios cartoons. And so she told me that there was already a book in progress and she put me in touch with Leslie Cabarga. Ah, okay. And so the timing was such that it was like the pieces came together because Ruth asked me, why do you want to do this? <laughs> and I said, well, I guess because I've always liked jigsaw puzzles. And she laughed and she said, well, you've got that about right, because I guess my dad's life is something of a jigsaw puzzle. And she admitted that in my research, I knew more than what she could remember. <laughs> and she said, realize the early part of my dad's career, I can't tell you because that was before I was born. Mm. And so I realized that because she wasn't born until 1906. Mm -hmm. And of course, he had several careers before that. But the main uh, focus of that is the fact that his central interest in mechanics and uh, technology was formed in, at an early age when he and his older brother, Charlie, they were born in Austria. 
At the time, Krakow was in, in Austro-Hungary. Not, it wasn't Poland then. Mm. Yeah. I've gone to great lengths to try to get people to understand that entry on uh, Wikipedia was altered. And by the way, my publisher asked me to sort out the entry on Max Fleischer that was on Wikipedia because it was such a jumbled up mess. And so I re- rewrote it for them and it was fine for two years until some robot changed it. Interesting. So, yeah, so the, the book does uh, set the, the political history in accuracy. Not only that, but I, I gained a copy of the 1905 census. Mm-hmm. It's documented uh, William, Amalia, Charles and Max as the country of origin in Austria. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, when Charlie and Max were kids, they were four and five or four and six, something like that. And you can imagine their first impression when they arrived in New York Harbor seeing the Statue of Liberty. And they were amazed at the, the technology that was involved mm-hmm. in building that statue. That was the spark of their interest. Mm-hmm. And Max considered um, mechanics as the the art of the 20th century. So that was his uh, motivation. And at an early age, Max's granddaughter, Jenny, through uh, her mother, they saved just about everything. It has Max's sketchbook from when he was 12 years old. And that shows at that early age, that interest in technical things like various machines and things that were hooked up to batteries and guns, how mm-hmm. a gun would operate, and so on and so forth. So he was more interested in basically how things worked more than animation itself. Animation was just kind of a an avenue that he could yeah, was, use a, those inventions. Yes, and it was a secondary thing. Yeah. And the thing that's amazing is the fact that he came into animation by accident, yeah. not by design. Mm-hmm. Because, as I said, he had several careers until he got into animation, but his initial interest was to become a cartoonist. And at an early age, he eventually became a cartoonist at the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Mm-hmm. And it was there that uh, he met John R. Bray, who is a former Michiganian. <laughs> and um, Bray recommended Max as a technical illustrator because Max took night classes at uh, the the Art Students League and Cooper Union. Mm -hmm. And so this led to him uh, being assigned to a job that took him to Boston. So he got married on Christmas Eve in 1905 and then they went to to Boston for about five years. And then he had an offer to become the art editor for Popular Science Magazine. Mm -hmm. So he was back in New York around 1912, 1913, something like that. Well, it was in 1913 that Bray made his first cartoon after he had visited Windsor McKay. And a year later, the Bray Studio was turning out some of the first commercially produced cartoons. Mm. The Bray Studio and the Barret Studio were the first two commercial animation studios. Barret was a little bit ahead of Bray, mm-hmm. but Bray pretty much had the, the market sewed up. The thing of it is there were a lot of compromises and producing those, and they were kind of jerky. And <laughs> it's amazing because they weren't as good as Bray's initial cartoon, which you can find on YouTube, uh, The Artist's Dream. Also, It's also called The Dachshund and the Sausage. So it was rather mm-hmm. clever. It was fairly well done. Mm-hmm. 
Well, the story has it that um, Max's boss, well, Wildermere Kempert, rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> and his wife went to the movies one night. Mm -hmm. And apparently they had gone to the movies several times and seen some of these early animated cartoons. So the cartoons were usually used as sort of like in the, the old theatrical structure where you'd have the warm-up act, you know. And they would be used as a warm-up act for the main feature. Well, one of those cartoons came on. And Kemper's wife said, oh, God, I hate these things. <laughs> and so Max's boss came, came in the next morning, and he told Max about this experience. And he said, Max, you're a clever guy. You know photography and mechanics. Can you figure out a way to make animated cartoons look better? And so realizing the painstaking and time-consuming process that McKay went through, he figured there had to be another way through mechanics and photography to solve the problem. Because in those days, nobody really knew the principles of animation. They were still figuring it out. Right. He figured it out, but it took a long time to do it. And he did it all from imagination. Of course, he was a tremendous draftsman. There was no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. And the story has it, he solved a lot of his animation problems through uh, a knowledge of, of uh, geometry. Mm -hmm. So somehow Max figured if you photographed live action, you could study that and get the timing of the action to get realistic movement. So the original concept appears to have been just for a test, according to the patent drawing, uh, a Boy Scout doing semaphore. Mm. Now, how the device came about is a story in itself, because those who have seen the patent drawing, which is in the book, yeah. it appears to be a cannibalized projector that was set on an incline board, and then there's an easel on a raised platform or raised legs. And then there's a, an opening in, the, in the, the drawing board with a glass pane. And then that allows the project, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That allows the image to come through. And then you put the paper mm -hmm. over that. And you, you can trace off from that image as your guide. Mm -hmm. Well, the story behind that is that Charlie and Joe ran an open air movie theater one summer when they were living on Pitkin Avenue in, in uh, Brooklyn. And mm -hmm. But they didn't do too well because the timing was such that either through the humidity or rain or mosquitoes, they didn't <laughs> do so well. Mm -hmm. And they, they, the company went bankrupt. And so by the time everything was settled, the proceeds that left them with a few folding chairs and that projector. Mm -hmm. So they used the projector and cannibalized it. And Charlie rigged up a means of the light source based on a, an automobile headlight that was powered by an automobile battery. Because those old projectors used carbon arc light, which put out a, a heat, you know, it was pretty right. hot. And so as long as the film was running, it wasn't in the danger of catching fire. However, mm. if that film still to trace off from it, you can't have a hot light source because, no. because that was <laughs> a film that was dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so fortunately the headlight was cool enough and the distance was such that it was just bright enough so that you could see it well enough to trace from. Hmm. So 
again, he's doing this in his spare time. And since we can, we can conclude that it was the, the Boy Scout, all you have to do is have a working model to prove that the idea works in order to secure the patent. But when you look at it, there's a span of about three or four years between when the patent was actually uh, applied for and then it was granted a, a year or two later. During that time, there were several experiments that occurred. So naturally the first one we can conclude was the voice spell just to prove that it worked. Mm -hmm. There was a second experiment according to Max's brother Joe, because Joe helped Joe and Charlie helped him helped him build it. So Charlie was there. Charlie and Joe, primarily Joe, worked with Max on the second experiment. Mm -hmm. So here's where we have the Achilles heel, so to speak. <laughs> Max was very technically visionary, but his weakness was in coming up with original characters. Now, this is what's unfortunate because when he was a cartoonist back in the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Eagle days, he had two original cartoon strips that he could have gone back on mm -hmm. to have used. But he never thought about his, his past accomplishments. He was always trying to go forward. Mm. The two comic strips that he had, probably the best one he could have used was Little Algae. It was about mm. this whole boy's adventures living in Brooklyn. And the aspirations to get out of the slums and that sort of thing. Because mm -hmm. Max certainly had a lot of motivation to get out of poverty and live a middle class life. And a lot of his editorial cartoons reflected uh, an admiration of middle class life. So that's what's interesting in the fact that he didn't fall back on what he already had before. He had that. And then he also had a strip about. Uh, E.G. Posher, the photography fiend, <laughs> and about this awkward photographer who was trying to get all these interesting camera angles, and he would end up having some sort of a disaster because he wasn't looking at what he was doing, and he would run into a bridge where he's trying to capture a picture of a train and didn't look at the schedule, and there's another one coming from the other direction, and it goes by, and he goes flying into the air, and the caption says, he heard the bell. <laughs> meaning clang you know he got hit right so unfortunately he didn't look back at his past accomplishments for something original mm. so according to joe and joe was very meticulous about he kept a journal about what was going on and so max got a hold of a print of a chaplain film and he traced that off so that took about eight months or so tracing off and inking it, and then the process of photographing it. And this is another thing that I go into my book, which is essential. At this point in time, we're talking about something that happened 100 years ago. The equipment did not exist to make animation. It all had to be adapted because they didn't even have motorized cameras. Yeah. So we had to figure out a way how to do this to maintain a consistency in the exposures because one thing he did find out in his very first experiment was that there had to be a regulation on the exposures. That he right. did find out from the first one. Mm -hmm. The camera he was using did not have, have a proper shutter. Mm. Universal, it was one of those disc shutters that had a single opening. So when you turned it by hand to turn the crank, 
you couldn't be sure that the opening was in the exact same position. So if it's open fully on the one exposure, it comes around and is three quarters open or half open, then you're going to have an inconsistent exposure and that's causing right. So based on that, he had to physically cap and uncap between exposures using a darkroom timer hmm. to know how long to expose the film until they figured out a mechanical means of controlling the camera. <laughs> so anyway, he spent about eight months doing this Chaplin film. Mm -hmm. uh, by this time, Dave was working as a film cutter at Pathé. And Dave was able to get him an interview with uh, this Frenchman by the name of Burst. Jacques Burst. He was the representative to Charles Pathé, who was in Paris. Mm -hmm. And of course, Burst was impressed because of the fluid execution. Mm -hmm. But of course, the image of Chaplin, they dare not touch because Chaplin was even back then notorious about suing about any infringement on his image. Mm -hmm. And so he said, well, we're impressed, but if you can come back with something original, we'd be interested. And he said, by the way, how long did it take you to produce this? And he said, well, I did this in my spare time. It took about eight months. And he said, well, eight months. No, we, we couldn't allow something like that. Mm -hmm. It was something like every, every two weeks, every month, maybe. Eight. Yeah, eight months, Nick's, you know. <laughs> um, he said, well, we'll come back with something a little more original and, and something that won't take quite so long to do. So that was experiment number two. Here comes experiment number three. And so Dave was uh, suggesting, well, how about my doing the clown? Because he had been a clown at Coney Island. And he right. still had the costume. So they rigged up something where they had a bedsheet background and they shot it on the roof of the apartment building. And so Dave went through these clown antics and they shot that. And again, they spent another eight months tracing that off. And all three brothers were working on that. And so he came back and Pathé said, yes, we like that. So Pathé set him up in an office in, um, in Orange, New Jersey, where the, the, uh, the headquarters were. They even built them additional rotoscopes. Mm -hmm. And so Max was impressed with Teddy Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to do a cartoon about one of Teddy Roosevelt's famous hunting trips. So they came up with this story about the Chanticleer, which is this, this big rooster. Mm -hmm. Instead of doing the clown, and Dave said, well, they like the clown, let's do the clown. He said, well, I think a political thing would be better. Mm -hmm. They went through the whole thing of Joe acting as, as, um, as Teddy Roosevelt, and Dave put on this, this chicken outfit, and they filmed that. And it was, they spent an, uh, another uh, five, six months working on that, and the results was disastrous. And they were fired over that. It was not successful. So Max was back around shopping the idea around. So he still had the clown reel. So he was at an outer office to Paramount about to see Adolf Zucker. Mm -hmm. In comes John Bray. And he hadn't seen Bray in about maybe five or 10 years. And it turned out that Bray already had a contract with Paramount. Mm. 
And he said, well, come on over to my studio because I have an exclusivity with Paramount. And Bray hired Max as production manager because he valued him as an artist mm -hmm. because of his technical abilities and so on. And from what Frank Goldman told me, that Max had an intuition about how to apply their best efforts in executing the best art in areas where you could use shortcuts and things like that so that they could work more economically and more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to just being the production manager of everything that they were doing, they had the entertainment films as well as educational films. Mm -hmm. And so just before they were getting going with Out of Inkwell, World War I started. And Bray had a contract to do training films for the Army. So Bray sent Max to Fort Sill with um, uh, Frank's cousin, uh, Jack, Jack Leventhal. And so they did training films on how to read a contour map, how to fire the uh, Stokes mortar, mm -hmm. and uh, things of that nature, how to uh, the machine gun operation, things of that nature. And so after the armistice, then out of Inkwell started up in full, full force. Right. <laughs> and apparently, Bray found a way to use three, actually there were four experiments because the Chanticleer also counts as the fourth, fourth experiment. Mm -hmm. So Bray apparently found some way of using that footage. And they used to appear on the old Bray catalog as experiments one, two, and three, even though there were four. So mm. food that the, the, the Chaplin experiment was skipped over. Yeah. Yeah. So That's, we're still trying to find if it if at all possible if any of those experiments still exist. Mm. Because the earliest out of the Inkwell film uh, started its release in 1919, and that would have been the clown's pup. Mm. And unfortunately, right now it only exists in inferior 16 millimeter dupes from Dover. Dover Films, which was one of those home movie sources, but right. it's what it is. But that was the very first one that was the official release where you had the combination of the live action and animation. And that format was actually already established at Bray, but it was done so successfully and cleverly the way Max handled it that it's synonymous with him and out of the inkwell. Mm -hmm. And so they did it for essentially two years, 1919 to 1921. There were 12 of them, maybe a few more than that, but only half of them survived. We're still hoping that there are about six of them. I think one of them has finally come to surface, the, the kangaroo, mm -hmm. the kangaroo. We have found that one. But one that would really be a great found would find would be Cartoon Land mm. because it had all the, the the current Hearst cartoons, and because of Max's connection with the cartooning circles, uh, Hearst allowed it. Yeah, that was a great find. Yeah, there was one called Restaurant and another one called Poker that's missing. Mm. But as it is, uh, half of them survived. And to find one in 35 millimeter is a tremendous rarity. But we mm. found one from 1921. Mm. But finding any of the Bray material in, in 35 millimeter is a tremendous, tremendous find. 
because we're talking about 100 years ago. Right. And uh, back in the 70s, when I started searching for some of these things and started my own collection, I contacted the Gray Studio to find out how many of these I could buy. And the, the negatives at that time, some of them were not printable. They told me. Mm. And they asked me if I would, in fact, the, the Clown's Pup was one of them that I ordered. And this was 1972, 73, and they couldn't print it. The negative mm. was in such terrible condition. And mm. so they asked me if I would accept substitutes. Well, yes, I was happy to get anything. Mm -hmm. And so then it turns out that uh, um, I got a print of what was supposed to have been a rarity at the time, the Chinaman, but then that's turned up as well. But these turned out to have been the TV prints. Mm. And so what, what happened was they recycled them for TV exhibition in 1950. And what they did on most of them, with the exception of the first one, the tantalizing fly, at least that one had one of the title cards. So at least I had the motif. Mm -hmm. The rest of them, they, they cut off the intertitles, mm -hmm. narration. And so apparently the narration coincided with what the title cards were. Mm. And so then 20 years ago, I put together four volumes in VHS. And then when DVDs came out, I consolidated them into a two-disc set. Mm. Volumes one and two on the one disc and volumes three and four on the second disc. And uh, I tried to recreate title, title cards. So fortunately, I had that one as a motif to work from that had the little gray signature on it. Mm -hmm. And you could always tell where they cut them up because there was an unexplained hitch or jump in the continuity <laughs> that indicated that's where there was a title inserted. In mm -hmm. some cases, and I found from some other sources, some of them were purposely cut out because they had ethnic slurs in them. Mm. Makes sense. Oh, but you can understand why for TV they would take those out. Yeah. So that's what I did at that particular time. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's interesting about that, when I started my company as a sideline when I was still active in the studios, mm -hmm. I uh, I was inspired by when this was very popular called the, the whole yep. catalog. Now, this is a, an addition from spring 2001 and we were in there on this page mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i started the company initially working with ken southworth whose name you've seen on the walter lance cartoons and and um the hanna barbera cartoons a lot of the snagglepuss cartoons and uh, he wanted to do a home instruction video to pass on some of his knowledge. And this company had been stringing him along and he has been long retired living in Anaheim. And I saw how earnest he was and how, how much he wanted to do this, you know. I said, well, I can do that for you. It's not gonna cost us very much money. And so I did the first volume with him and uh, the whole tune catalog picked it up and they liked it so well and it, it sold so quickly and so well we made our initial investment back and so we did two more volumes so based on that i figured well this is eventually going to play itself out and i had this film collection and what motivated me was when the whole tune, ca tune catalog came out that was back in the vhs days mm -hmm. 
There are a lot of rare cartoons that are on a lot of these VHS tapes. And because of their rarity, a lot of them were from poor sources. And there were disclaimers that said quality, mediocre, or poor, or very poor. And when I saw some of the titles, I wondered, well, wait a minute, I've got prints of some of these cartoons, and the prints are pretty good. So there's no reason for it to be poor. So why don't I put out something that's a little bit better and see what happens? So what I did was I came out with a sort of a cavalcade from my collection called Before Walt. Mm -hmm. Sight unseen, when I described it, they, they bought, already bought 50, not even wow. seen. So I said, well, I've got to get, got to get this out. <laughs> I out with it in DVD and I got the uh, cover right over here. Excuse me. I later uh, revised it in DVD version in 2006 yeah. with the centennial of American animation. Mm -hmm. And so it, it covers everybody chronologically. And then on the extras, there are individual profiles of all the pioneers. So that was the beginning of that. And of course I had the Out of the Inkwell collection and that has been my biggest seller for the past 20 years. Right. And of course, I've told you why I was inspired to do that because I practically lived that story. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I explained that in the prologue to my book. Right. And so during the course of my lifetime, I've, I've lived this thing. Mm -hmm. I crossed paths with people who either worked with Max or knew him. And uh, when I was working at Film Roman, I sat across the the hall from Bernie Wolf, who was one of the initial animators working with Seymour and Itell, who did the actual transform transformation of Betty Boop from the dog character to the human character. And this is something that I try to clarify, clarify in my book. In that, and again, with all due respect, I come up with a lot of extra things that go beyond the stories that have been repeated and repeated and repeated ad nauseum, but there's more to these stories. Yes, Grim Matwick set the foundation for the design of Betty Boop's head, but he had left the studio while she was still the dog character and he had nothing to do with the transformation of her becoming human. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like the argument about who created Bugs Bunny and so forth. All of these guys will admit that it was a collaborative effort because everybody had suggestions. I think it's fair to assume when Max took credit for creating Betty Boop that he had some input. It seems that there were some logical connections about changing the ears to hoop earrings to make her seem human. And it was a good design choice because the original design, quite frankly, was rather awkward and hideous with these yes. <laughs> she was already 90% human as it was. Right. So it, it, was, uh, it was a natural transformation. And so that's really the character that people know as Betty Boop. The thing that's interesting is she wasn't known as Betty Boop when Gren Netwick was there. Mm -hmm. It didn't happen until after she, after she was there. So when you follow the chron 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 chronology of the films and you watch the names and the credits, it's after Bernie Wolf and Seymour Nitell started working on her that she became known as Betty Boop. Mm. So anyway, I, I worked across the 
Paul from Bernie Wolf when he was producer on Bobby's World. Mm -hmm. He assigned me to do cleanup work for him. I was terrified. <laughs> I was terrified because I knew his history. Mm -hmm. Not only because of his history with Fleischer Studios, but also the fact that he had worked at Disney. Mm -hmm. He worked on Elmer the Elephant. He had this famous story about making 13 corrections on a scene he did on Elmer the Elephant. Mm -hmm. And uh, he animated Jiminy Cricket. Anyway, I was assigned to do cleanup work for him. So I, you know, I did it. <laughs> so I turned it in and I, I, I handed it to him. I, I did like this. I said, I think, well, I hope it's a good enough. You know? <laughs> and you know what he said? Hmm. He said, Oh, I wish I could do drawings as beautiful as that. And I hope I can find it real quick. But he gave me this mechanical pencil that has been my good luck charm ever since. And I have it over here. Here it is, here it is, here it is. Okay, okay. <laughs> he gave me, he gave me this mechanical pencil with the wow. little button, so when you're drawing, you don't have to do this. You can keep, you can keep drawing and you, you can just keep pressing there and it keeps advancing your, your lead and you don't have to twist it around. This has been my good luck charm the rest of my career. Mm -hmm. And so later when I interviewed him on tape, I said, Bernie, I still have the pencil you gave me. He said, get it back. Get it back. <laughs> but to, to get that kind of a compliment from somebody with his history, mm -hmm. that was just about as good as getting, getting uh, an endorsement from Max Fleischer. Mm -hmm. And Bernie told me some wonderful things about Max, too. He also told me some frank things about Dave. Mm -hmm. he said, I guess Dave was all right, but he said, frankly, there wasn't any charm between Dave and the animators because he was kind of brusque and he didn't understand artists and that sort of thing. And they would always gravitate to Max. Mm -hmm. they, there was something that they all contributed to the success of what they accomplished. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when you have opposite personalities, that's how the magic happens. Mm -hmm. So the two men were totally, totally di diverse altogether because Max was very refined and gentlemanly and, and, and Dave was kind of coarse. Did they ever get along? I mean, it's like the way, I, you know, I guess they had to at the beginning, the beginning, but you know. They did it in the beginning. Okay. Okay. But, but um, you've heard all of the the gossip about what went on between the two of them. Those right. issues about their personal lives—that was a secondary issue. I can tell you exactly how the feud started. Hmm. It goes back to when the the strike was going on, mm -hmm. and a lot of it was based on the success of Popeye. Hmm. And the core to this whole story and the demise of the studio. And the core of the story is them coming up from poverty and having this, this sudden success with limited education and getting the success and not knowing how to manage it. <laughs> That's what went wrong. Yeah. And sounds, sounds like certain rock groups or <laughs> music groups or right, right, other right, people, right. just anybody that's worked in close whatever, and then right. and success had, changes everything. So. Right, and everybody, everybody had good intentions. 
But as I said before, Max's, all of Max's successes were by accident. Mm -hmm. Alvequa was by accident. Mm -hmm. Betty Boop was by accident. Because the original character was supposed to have been a semi caricature of Helen Kane on purpose. Right. Only a one time thing. Mm -hmm. But the reaction was so great in the preview that Paramount encouraged the continued development, which became mm -hmm. Betty Boop. And of course, that story about the lawsuit, that's another thing altogether. Mm -hmm. Max saw the value in Popeye that neither King Features nor Paramount saw, but Max saw that value. And mm -hmm. of course, Popeye took off. Another accidental success. Right. Popeye was such a success that Paramount wanted more and more cartoons, and they put more pressure on the studio and the studio management. And they expanded to such a degree that they ran out of space. Right. And they inherited more people when Van Buren closed. Mm -hmm. And they, they ran out of space, and before they could accommodate more space, then a strike was building up. Because the sentiment for the strike had already started at Van Buren, and it just moved over to Fleischer. <laughs> so, and I'm 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 capsulizing all of, of course. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of this was seen really as as catapulted by the success of Popeye and the inability to manage that situation. Mm -hmm. And so Max was devastated by this and couldn't understand why the strike was going on because the department managers were not telling him about the problems. <laughs> Max didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so Max sort of lamented and he carelessly made a remark by saying, I guess I'm looking forward to the expiration of the license on this character. Dave got furious about that remark because the license was for 10 years and was going to expire in 1941, or 1942, because the, the license was acquired in, in September of 32. 32 mm -hmm. for 10 years and it was going to expire in September of 42. Dave got furious. And a lot of their problems was miscommunication. And Max was a gentleman and good-hearted, but sometimes there was an odd way that he would phrase things that was taken the wrong way. <clears throat> and a lot of his thinking was sort of retrograde in, in, in respect. Because he would say, acquire power, but don't use it. Mm -hmm. When you really mean to say, acquire power, but don't abuse it. But if you've got the power, and if you're in the position of that power, then you need to use it to your advantage, but you don't have to overuse it where you, you abuse people. Right. That's really the best idea. Or in the military, they say, rank has its privilege. And there are many mm -hmm. times I said, well, with rank, you gain privilege, but rank doesn't give you the privilege of abusing people mm -hmm. a lot of examples of that but aside from all that but he made that aside remark and of course dave got mad at that and he said what do you want to do make those boring training films that nobody wants to see how many <laughs> films that i've been working so hard to make success that have made you rich and you want to make these boring things that was the start of the feud and of course, the rest of it went off, but that yeah. sort of started Dave against Max's decisions. And of course, then there were other things that were going on, and then there were additional pressures that were mounting because of going into Gulliver's travels.
<laughs> now, there's another thing here, too, in the fact that you'd wonder, what kind of business advice did they have? <laughs> well, they had gone through two experiences where partners had cheated them, mm -hmm. caused their companies to go bankrupt twice. So Max and Dave decided, no more partners. We're going to handle this ourselves. Now, around 1932, Emmanuel Cohen, who used to be a sales representative for Paramount, approached Max at a Paramount sales meeting, and he was about to leave Paramount, and approached him about being a silent partner in Fleischer Studios. He said, I'll put up $500,000 and work as a silent partner for you. So in the comparison between the success pattern of Disney and Max Fleischer, here is what's the crucial difference. First of all, Disney had more original characters that he could license, which brought in ancillary revenue. Yeah. Max had only one character that they owned, and that was Betty Boop. Everything else was licensed. He didn't own Popeye. Well, he owned Coco, too, but I guess that wasn't well, considered yeah. big, I guess, was at yeah, that point. That was way, way before, but Betty yeah, Boop, yeah, yeah. they owned that they could license. Right, right. <laughs> And so between the two studios, Max's studio assets were half of what Disney's were. Mm -hmm. The thing is that when Disney got away from Columbia, Columbia had the same deal that Max had with Paramount, a financing and distribution agreement. But the difference between what Disney had with Columbia about financing and distribution is that Disney ended up with final ownership of the films. And then when he went to United Artists, Chaplin set him up, Chaplin and Fairbank set him up as an independent finance source from Bank of America. So then his obligations would only be to Bank of America and not to the distributor. Mm -hmm. But Max continued to rely on Paramount and because of his long-term relationship with Paramount, Max was just mesmerized by the sentiment of being attached to Paramount for so long. Mm -hmm. The problem of it was they had reached their apex in 1936. Between 1930 and 1936, Paramount went through four bankruptcy re reorganizations. Mm -hmm. Max failed to realize the warning signs. Had he taken up Cohen's offer for independent financing, he had one last chance when they were starting their new studio in Miami and to go into features, they should have started a restructure business plan going into features with a different structure, mm -hmm. independent financing for the features where there would be some sort of a revenue share plan as it was, Fleischer Studios was a service company to Paramount, and Fleischer did not own the films. <laughs> and so the Achilles heel there was, even though there were renewal clauses that went up until 1947, Paramount could have broken that, which they ended up doing. Yep. And if at a certain point, if Paramount found they had grounds where Fleischer was not performing to their expectations, they could go to another studio or form another studio. Yep. So it goes back to the question about what kind of business advice did they have? They didn't have very good business advice. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> because 
you would think Max's attorney should be acting in Max's best interest. Mm -hmm. Here is what I concluded by having access to the contracts and reading through them. Now, I would like more documentation, but as I said, this has been a jigsaw puzzle. So when you start putting these pieces together based on what happened at the loss of the studio, and also based on Dave's lawsuit in 1965. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, there's a knock on the door, but I'll just have to leave it. <laughs> That's my dog, sorry. <laughs> But apparently Dave was aware that there was the conflict of interest in the legal representation. I'm not exactly clear as to whether William Welling was associated with uh, Neiser and Phillips, who were the representatives for Paramount during the Helen Kane lawsuit. Mm -hmm. But according to the transcripts, you had um, Max Fleischer, Fleischer Studios and Paramount as the defendants against uh, the lawsuit brought up by Helen Kane. Mm -hmm. And they were represented by William Welling for Max Fleischer and Fleischer Studios and Neiser and Phillips. So that was so that indicates that the Welling was supposed to have been a separate attorney. Mm -hmm. I concluded now, this is my conclusion that because of the success of that suit, the Helen Kane lawsuit, which they won, which Paramount was ecstatic about, mm -hmm. that Welling was brought on as a partner with Neiser and Phillips. And mm -hmm. he be working with Phillips. That's a conflict of interest. Right. Plus he could not be representing Fleischer Studios and, and working with the representative of, of Paramount Studios. Mm -hmm. That's a conflict of interest. I'm not sure whether Max knew that, but if Welling did not disclose that, he should have been disbarred because that was illegal. Yeah. So later on, here's where the complication is, and this is the key to the whole breakup. For a long time, it was assumed that Paramount financed the new building, and Paramount financed the old, and Paramount. Um, finance the building of the student. No, you cannot do that because mm -hmm. when they allocate the production funds for Gulliver's Travels, according to the laws of accounting, when you allocate funds for a specific project, you cannot use them for something else. Sure. No, the move to the studio and the building of the new studio in Miami was financed out of Fleischer Studios assets of over $350,000. So there was no loan from Paramount. Paramount financed Gulliver. But here's the turning point. In 1936, Barney Balaban came in as the new head of Paramount. Right. He changed the entire content of Paramount's movies because he was trying to see that they stayed black. Right. We're losing a lot of money because of the racy content. A lot of their films did not play well in the Midwest where you mm -hmm. had a lot of audiences that were a little bit prudish. Right. So he was trying to find a better way of making their image a little more homogenized. So he was using MGM as a model mm -hmm. to make more general audience type films of the type that MGM produced, 
at a lower cost. Mm -hmm. so since MGM was their model that they were going to emulate, that's why you see the cultivation of musical stars like Bing Crosby and so on. Mm -hmm. The stars that really helped them, like Mae West and W.C. Fields, they phased them out and they right. started going in another direction. So since MGM was Paramount's model under Balaban, and their new slogan was to communicate the American ideal to the world. Mm -hmm. Then at Balaban, Balaban's urging, he's trying to get Fleischer to be Disney. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there. And so from that point on, then all of a sudden Paramount is putting up Fleischer cartoons for competition in Academy Award nominations. Mm -hmm. Starting in 1936. And so the first one that was nominated was uh, Popeye the Sailor meets Sinbad the Sailor. However, right. <laughs> however this was a first on another, another level. Paramount stupidly did not petition for a special achievement award, which it could have won. Right. Because it, it pioneered the longer format cartoon and they could have won for that. Yes. But since Disney always got the cartoon awards for shorts <laughs> Fleischer could have won it for Sinbad because it was something different what was the two really it was yeah. because it was 16 minutes long yeah but they figured well if we've got a color cartoon that can compete with Disney and then it's twice as long and so they figured that they could compete with Disney in that respect no wrong thinking <laughs> and every time when they put up one of the color classics there was a Popeye cartoon in black and white that would have been a stronger contender, but because it was in black and white and Disney's color cartoons were winning all the time, it was just naive thinking. Right. But the interesting thing is this proves that Balaban was trying to compete with MGM and Disney. Yep. <laughs> now the internal memos indicate that Max had the vision for doing a feature as early as 1934 before Disney had come out with Snow White. The assumption is based on the surface impression that because Disney came out with Snow White, that Fleischer imitated that and came up with Gulliver. That wasn't the idea. Mm -hmm. And in all fairness, and the reason why Disney got three color Technicolor was not because Max was asleep at the wheel because he was on top of all of the technology and he was a mem member of SMPE, the Society of of motion picture engineers. He knew about all those things. But again, because of Paramount's series of bankruptcies and reorganizations, at the time when Three Color Technicolor was being presented and they went around to all the studios, Paramount was not in the position to take right. on the financial risk. They could not right. do it. They Money. didn't want to do it because they're trying to restructure their financial structure. So that is why Disney grabbed onto it and why he created the color cartoon market which within a year, everybody else was compelled to do because he created a cartoon market. And so that's why when Paramount finally greenlit a color series for Fleischer in 1934, they were stuck with the two, two color processes because Disney still had exclusivity until right. 1935. So that's what happened in that respect. But in 1934, Max had the vision to do features. But Paramount kept saying no because of the financial structure. They kept saying no. They kept saying no. <laughs> okay. 
So then when Snow White was coming around, it was still being discussed. Internal memos were still saying no. Mm -hmm. Up until February 28, 1938. <laughs> the New York premiere of Snow White was in February of 1938. March 1st, they had a change of heart. You know why? Hmm, I wonder why. <laughs> why? Because the one-month box office report on Snow White came out. And Balaban saw the writing. Mm -hmm. He also looked at Disney's release schedule. And Pinocchio wasn't due to come out until February of 1940. Right. So there's an envelope there. Guess what? There's nothing available during the Christmas season of 1939. <laughs> That's 18 months away. So suddenly, they had a change of heart. And they ordered an animated feature. Now, during the course of this discussion, yes, there were a lot of negative comments, and they figured that there, we're getting into a territory that we don't know anything about, but maybe if we did a lower budgeted feature, we might get by if it were budgeted at $500,000. Right. <laughs> so when they came forward with the request to do a feature, here again is where Max and his attorney were in the position. And again, Max fell victim of his own philosophy <laughs> about not using his power because the response should have been, we're so happy to learn of your interest in doing an animated feature, which has been our interest for some time, as you are aware. And we would be very happy to come forward. But considering that this may be um, a, an A feature and considering the expense of uh, the previous feature, we would like to consider a more reasonable budget. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that Balaban wanted this and they did not have to agree to $500,000. They didn't have to do it, but Balaban wanted it. Mm -hmm. It ended up costing three times as much. So if Balaban was going to uh, finally okay $1,500,000, that's what they should have offered in the first place. But right. anyway, based on the original pr proposal of $500,000, and this is where Max's attorney should have acted in Max's interest. There was a penalty overrun caused if they went over the $500,000. And guess what that penalty was? $350,000. Mm. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> I did come up with $350,000. That was the total assets of Fleischer Studios. Mm. Crazy. So why should they be held responsible for going over budget when Paramount didn't offer enough money to begin with, and it's Paramount's picture? So why should it be their responsibility? Mm. It's just like if you hire a contractor to do a job, and it turns out because of certain circumstances and it's going to cost more mm -hmm. and you agree that you're going to have to pay more. Is it fair for you to make the contractor responsible because something ended up costing more because material costs went up or something like that? It's <laughs> not your fault yeah. that the materials cost more or you ran into problems and so forth because you want the job done. Right. So you can't hold the contractor responsible for something that's out of his control. 
So this was the problem. And no, it did not lose money. But there are two other things here. They, Max's attorney should not have allowed for a, a cost overrun um, penalty clause. They said, no, we're, we're not going to agree to this. This will not be in the contract. Mm -hmm. Offer more money. Paramount has to bear the responsibility because it's their picture. So we have to have a decent budget. The other issue is that there had to be a definition of, of guarantee, a guaranteed sufficient distribution. <laughs> they did not distribute it properly. Yeah. They only made 26 prints. Wow, I didn't even know that. <laughs> one month distribution yeah. during Christmas season. So it only ran for six weeks. And then they withdrew it in February because they knew that they could not compete with Disney because of because of um, Pinocchio coming mm -hmm. out. But domestically, it came out during the Christmas season, but they could only service 26 theaters. They even bicycled the prints. With the thousands of theaters that Paramount had, they only made 26 prints of Gulliver's Travels as their premier Christmas movie. And so to fill the void, they sent out a boring biography of the, the story of Victor Herbert. And the audience doesn't even know who Victor Herbert was. But if you've heard of Babes in Toyland, that's how yeah. far back, over 150 years ago, that famous old operetta is based on that. That was Victor yeah. Herbert. Yeah. Yeah, The March of the Wooden Soldiers is, is right. Victor Herbert's work. Right. Yeah. So that was their substitute for their Christmas film. Paramount dis disappointed their audience, and it would have been a big slam dunk if they had properly distributed this film. So based on that, even though it ended up costing three times what they original, originally uh, budgeted, it made $3 million in one month domestically with 26 prints. So they made a, a million and a half. So they made back what they made and they made a million and a half. So why should be Fleischer Studios fall? And then it, went in, then it went into foreign release. And you know full well, they certainly made $350,000 off of that. Mm -hmm. But they didn't report it. Mm -hmm. So then when we get into 1941, Here's where the catch was. And there were other problems. There were personal problems that were coming up because of all the tensions that were going on with Gulliver's Travels. And Dave was claiming, I've got to have more money. And so between Max and Dave and the personal problems that were going on, Welling set up an agreement and you never want to have a business relationship that's 50% split. But because of a law in Miami, relatives could not equally own a corporation. So 1% was given to Izzy Sparber. So it actually ended up being that they had 49.5% or something like that. But even when you have an equal share between two business owners, you have no leverage for seniority. So if one of the partners isn't performing, the other doesn't have the authority to, to terminate the other partner. Mm -hmm. And Paramount was aware of this. So Max couldn't make Dave do something when Dave had as much authority as Max. So I can't understand how Welling could have allowed that to happen. If Max had 49.1% and, and Dave had 48.99%, mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. It would have been an equal, it would have been a fair balance. Yeah. So it makes you wonder what kind of an attorney was this man? <laughs> so anyway, their their contracts were set up where it was in their contracts. The reason why Dave was credited on all those as directors because it was in their contract. Mm -hmm. And so the contract were written that Max and Dave were the producers to be credited as Max Fleischer producer and Dave Fleischer director. That was in their contract. And so it was set up where their salaries were allocated as such and such to be, be divided equally. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's the awkwardness that you have there. And the awkwardness that you have is when you have a 50 50% business relationship mm -hmm. what one does the other is responsible for so if dave didn't do something max is held responsible for it right and so there were a lot of there was a lot of uh, stories in fact uh max's son had uh accounts which i quoted in my book by permission about Certain films that were were uh, waiting for post production were released, and they they weren't getting done because it was Mac, Dave was away, and he wasn't on the job, and Max kept sending him memos, and he said, "We've got to get these done and so forth. If I don't get a decision, I'm going to be doing this." And da 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 da, and Max was just getting frustrated because Dave was not taking any direction, <laughs> and they were finishing their their um, their second feature. And Max saw errors or holes in the story that could be improved, and he had ideas to make it better. And the suggestions went, went on for weeks, they were being addressed. And finally, when a response would come back in writing, and my understanding from what I was told was that Dave wasn't even responding, that his secretary was answering. <laughs> and I knew her, so I had her perspective on Max, and she would scoff at Max anyway. And so based on the language, I knew that May wrote those responses because it was not Dave's vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those terse responses that came back from, from to Max came from, from, from May. Things mm -hmm. to the extent where your suggestions have been noted, but it's too late in the process now. And she, she responds two weeks later. Mm -hmm. like, like it was deliberately put off, you know, yeah. things of that nature. So anyway, yeah, the um, the problems between the secretary and all that, she finally left and went off to New York. And, mm -hmm. and Dave was going back and forth to New York because of her being there and things were being left undone and so on. But here's where the, uh, the, the final crossover happened. Uh, Max's frustrations about not being able to communicate with Dave and find out what was going on reached a frustration where when in 1941 when they signed their last contract in may of 1941 they signed this contract for a renewal for another year and then their contracts are always renewed on the 27th of may the following year so everything was settled as sort of like boilerplate contracts where they were continuations of the same clauses right and then Paramount would order 12 of a certain series, 12 Popeyes budgeted $16,500 and so many color cartoons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
A week later, an amended contract was delivered there by uh, Dick Murray. And Dick Murray was threatening to hold up the payroll and Paramount was controlling the payroll weekly by this point. And he was threatening to hold, uh, hold back the payroll because after 18 months, they were trying to call in their responsibility about that, that penalty clause for $350,000. Mm -hmm. Well, doesn't it make sense that after the foreign release that they should have recouped the $350,000? No. <laughs> so there was an amendment to that contract, which they already signed. And it's almost like it was extortion. And Murray said, you've got to sign this contract or we're going to withhold the payroll. Now, had Max taken up the offer from Cohen about this, the silent partner and would have had the independent financing, Max could have called their bluff and he could have said, you know what? We already signed a contract last week where you agreed that you were going to forward this money. And we've already signed a contract. Now, if you withhold the, the money, you are breaching the contract we've already signed. We don't have to sign this contract. So I'll tell you what, we don't need this. I'll just put my staff on vacation. You want the films. You're breaching the contract. I don't care. You either want the films or you don't. He should have called his, called his bluff. They didn't have to right. sign that contract because they already signed a contract that guaranteed the, 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 the finance flow. But they mm -hmm. didn't do that. So instead, Max's attorney said, here's the, the turning point. As the collateral of the $350,000, this was in that contract, which is so heartbreaking. There were, there, were, there were these pages that were tacked on to the original contract. It was a 47-page contract. Even though I'm not an attorney, but this was so convoluted, it took me two hours to read through all this and go back and say, wait a minute. <laughs> what is this referring to? And I had to go back and translate what all these things are referring to. And there was a reference to a 26-week period where they were allowing both of the brothers to reside within within six months of this one-year contract. Hmm. In other words, they wanted them to finish the feature, and then after the fin finish, feature was finished, either one of the brothers could resign after six months. But in the meantime, they were to surrender their stock to Fleischer Studios. <laughs> and Max's attorney advised them to do it. Crazy. <laughs> was the question was, should we do this? And the attorney said, "Do it, and we'll deal with it later." Hmm. What the attorney should have explained to them first of all, again, if they had not had that that cost overrun penalty, they wouldn't have been in this situation in the first place. Right. What the attorney should have called for was Paramount, we're sorry. We don't understand why there's a deficit when you have one of the most profitable animated features in history, which is Popeye. Yeah. After 18 months, you tell me that we don't have $350,000 recouped. We need to have an audit. 
in the meantime, production needs to continue and we need to call for an audit. Mm -hmm. Max seemed to be afraid to call for an audit. You know why? Because in his mind, he did not want to offend Paramount. You know who Paramount is the, the, the symbol of? Adolf Zucker. <laughs> and I had the feeling that Max was afraid of Adolf Zucker. That's my feeling. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I guess he felt he had a sentimental connection to Adolf Zucker. Adolf Zucker meant nothing with this. He's dealing with Barney Balaban, and Barney Balaban was a shark because ba Barney Balaban got them into this, this trap. And Max's attorney did not help them avoid the trap. He had to have been aware of what these machinations were. And by the time this was happening, um, Max's attorney was already working for the firm representing Paramount. <laughs> because why else would he advise Max to, to surrender their stock? So by the time they did that and agreed to that, that's how it happened. They gave up the ownership. But the understanding was that Paramount was going to hold the ownership for six months. Now, here's the way they could have wiggled out of it. And Welling did not explain it this way. But I figured this out from the logic. They agreed that they were going to hold the stock for six months. <laughs> After six months, either one of the brothers could resign from the agreement. Mm -hmm. The provision is, yes, provided you return the stock to us. Once the Fleischer stock was returned, then the Fleischer brothers owned the company again, and then the dealing with the termination could be handled within Fleischer Studios and not under the authority of Paramount. Do you see the difference there? Mm -hmm. So... Dave stayed on until post-production was completed on Mr. Bug, and then he resigned on the 27th of November of 1941 within the agreement because he resigned within the 26 weeks, which would have been up on the 27th of November. And the agreement said that they had the right to resign within 30 days of the end of that agreement. Dave did that. But he did not let Max know that he, res he was resigning. Mm. He did not copy Max <laughs> on the telegram. Max was still reeling from these frustrations, and he wanted uh, Paramount to fire Dave for non-performance. Mm. So the, 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 the telegrams crossed in the mail. And again, Max's wording was unfortunate. Because in his frustrations, when he worded it by saying, effective the 27th, I can no longer work with Dave Fleischer. That sounds like a resignation, but he didn't say that it was, he was resigning, but it sounds that way. Mm -hmm. So that's why in Max's mind, he thought that he was getting paramount to fire Dave. And that's why during the, the Christmas hiatus, Balaban called Max up to, to New York on the 27th of December, 30 days after the te telegram, and he said, we've accepted your resignation. Wow. That's how it happened. <laughs> and January 1st, it became officially Fleisch, uh, Famous Studios. But right. actually, it was officially 
famous studios on March 27, 1941. But the transfer of ownership was official on January 1st of 1942. And so I gained access to the transfer papers and along with those assets were the, the licenses to Popeye and Superman. And the story about the acquisition of Superman, Paramount had nothing to do with it. Max negotiated that just like he did with the Superman license. Hmm. So that is how they lost the studio. Yeah, if they were more savvy. And the other thing, too, is they waited too long to sue. Yeah. Now, if they were more savvy, do you think that they would have continued on for decades or would there have been other things like the antitrust yes. in the late yes, 40s yes. or? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because Paramount was was mixed up in a whole lot of anti antitrust issues, because for one thing, okay. one of the, the complications that Paramount was mixed up in was block booking, which was one of the things that the <laughs> consent decree of 1938 was trying to eliminate. Right. And that was also part of the complications about the release of their second feature. Mm -hmm. And Pearl Harbor, by the way, had nothing to do, nothing to do whatsoever about the failure to release Mr. Bug Goes to Town. Yeah. Because it had its preview on the 5th of December, 1941. It was required by law to be previewed along with several other features that Paramount had to release. It was previewed to the, the exhibitors before the general release, but it was scheduled as their 1941 Christmas release. They had three weeks for the scheduled release and there'd already been advertisements for it. Mm -hmm. But the exhibitors said they didn't want it. Mm. And then when the war came out, again, had they used a little more imagination, there was an underlying theme. Had they been clever enough, they still could have released it for Christmas because of the underlying theme about the attack on the insect community, which is a war, and the theme about we'll stick together and we'll get to the top. If they had mounted a campaign about how that ties in with the war, they could have released it if they wanted to. Right. <laughs> it was Paramount's own fault that they lost the money, but it was Paramount's picture to do what, what, what they were going to do. Right. They couldn't fault Flasher Studios because Flasher Studios did everything they could do to keep their, their ends, their bargain of the contract. They fulfilled their bargain on the contract. Mm -hmm. Paramount failed to release the picture, so it was not Fleischer Studios' fault what happened. It was Paramount's doing because of their mismanagement. And right. that is how I have, I have uh, concluded this whole thing. Yeah. Paramount did not know how to manage the thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you would say if the Fleischers had more, more savvy business sense and so forth, well, yes and no. Because in Disney's case, I think a great deal of credit that has not been given enough is Roy Disney. Yeah, great. <laughs> because, and of course, you know, Disney's ego for the better, mar better part of it gave him a sense of making sure that what he did was going to be under his control, which is fine, you know, yeah. because yeah. this is your life, you're building a, a commodity and so forth and so on. So more power to him because he he built his little industry, which was fine. But um, Max was just too passive about what he was doing, and just did he did not have the same kind of a mindset. And the unfortunate thing, though, is that Max's brother Charlie, who was very close to, 
did go to law school and he passed the bar. Mm -hmm. But he didn't go into law because after going through all of that, he didn't like the ethics of the profession. Think how different that would have been if Charlie had been their attorney. Chances mm -hmm. <laughs> are he would have seen what was going on and advised them, and they probably could have avoid, avoided all of this. Maybe maybe Dave saw all of this too, and maybe Max wouldn't listen. I don't know. Yeah. But surely Dave must have realized something was wrong in their legal representation because that was an issue in his lawsuit in 1959 mm -hmm. because there was a conflict of interest in the attorneys. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> You've gone through the whole story, which is great, and which is and you can what still I buy the book. What I want, yeah, which is what I wanted you to do. Now, you had mentioned, I don't know if you mentioned it prior to us going on, or you can mention it now. You you said you found some new information that has come to light since you did your book here. So, uh -huh. how are you getting this new information, and how? I don't know if you want to reveal it, but I mean, it's like. It, does it significantly change the story or does it, it just it en enhance it? it? It doesn't change the story. It just, okay. it, it expands the, the understanding. Okay. All right. All right. And um, again, I wish I could have had more access to internal communications, but the few that I had seen yeah. certainly gave me a pretty good idea of what was going on. Yeah. So, um, at this point, I mean, it's like, uh, what am I trying to ask? <laughs> well, I already kind of asked it, but I mean, had they been more savvy, or let's say they did everything right, um, would Fleischer have gone down the same road that Disney did in the 50s, 60s, 70s, do you think, and beyond? Well, or here's would, would they have gone a different path? Here's it's all speculation. So yeah, right. Yeah. Here's a pattern that I, I see that they could have gone in. Mm -hmm. And my, my considerate conclusion is based on Max's interests because something like Superman that was in the science fiction realm was right up Max's alley. Mm -hmm. Had Superman come a year earlier, that probably could have saved them in some respect. Because here's another thing, they had a very bad year in 1940 under Dave's supervision because Dave was in charge of production. This was part of the frustration and the fact that when they came up with that, that split, Dave pretty much pushed Max out of the picture and took over uh, production itself. And so those horrible cartoons that were produced in 1940 that nobody remembers were under his influence. Mm -hmm. and naturally Max was embarrassed about them but Max saw value in Superman mm -hmm. and some of the other concepts that they, they were dealing with as far as features were concerned would have been quite a bit more sophisticated and they would have gone in a different direction then you see sort of the, the direction that, that famous studios first started going into during that initial change, it's almost like there wasn't much difference. But all of a sudden there was better character design. Mm -hmm. the, the, the art direction got better. There was better use of color. 
you start to see that happen with Superman. And so there's a good chance that they would have gone in the science fiction realm. And that would have been a totally different thing. And there, there wouldn't have been any, any issue about trying to emulate what Warner Brothers was doing or Columbia or Disney or anything like that. Be completely different and be true to themselves. And that's something would have been uh, very, very true to Fleischer. It would have made him very happy because it would have been the types of things that he just loved. Yeah. Do you think it might have gone the direction of maybe the, uh, Fleischer just becoming like a special effects house, you know, exclusively or oh, something no. like that because of no. Max's, you know, interest in the technical over maybe animation and, and well, that, kind of. That, that, well, that's a good, good possibility, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, yes, again, it's all speculation. Who knows? But, yeah, but yeah. Here's, here's the other thing, too. I couldn't understand why. Max wasn't alert to other things that were going on because I figured, you know, wishful thinking being what it was. If he had been alerted to George Powell and if he yeah, had I was going to ask about that. <laughs> and negotiated with Paramount to be the provider of all short subjects for Paramount, that probably could have saved them too. Yeah. Because actually it was the George Powell stuff that was starting to win the Academy Awards. Right. that Fleischer was not winning. Right. And to a certain degree, there was sort of a similar tone or technique, even though George Powell was doing stop motion animation, but there was some um, 2D animation that he did that was similar in execution to the Fleischer style too, as far right. as the timing is concerned. So there was a, um, there, there was a similarity yeah. in the tonality of, of their work. And it would have been an interesting marriage. And obviously, uh, George Powell did a number of science fiction films. So, yeah, uh, later totally, on, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and if he had uh, acquired the services of uh, Jerry Fairbanks, yeah, who uh, later uh, went on with the uh, Speaking of Animals series. Mm -hmm. So, if if he had expanded the way that Disney did in the 1950s under his own company, Buena Vista. Not only did he have the features, but he had the cartoons and he had the uh, um, the nature films yeah. and so forth, and then educational division and so forth, and branched out. Um, Max could have uh, gone into service films, educational films. That was something that he loved doing. And mm -hmm. of course, when he lost the studio, he came to Detroit, and that's what he supervised at Jam Handy. Right. And of course, I mean, he was there because of his technical research abilities as well. And an interesting thing is that when I was asking around when I was there, I sort of got my head bitten off because I, I asked. Because at the time, he was doing <laughs> me. Um, top secret research and development things for the service. Mm -hmm. You know, sighting systems for bombers and things like that. Yeah. Mm hmm but even though I got my head bitten off, I grew another one. <laughs> now, you, the, you mentioned way, way back at the beginning, you mentioned you met Max Fleischer. Was that the only time you met him, or did you meet him on many yeah, occasions? Well, he, was, he was quite elderly at that time. Yeah, so, that's what I kind of thought. He had yes. been ill, and about two years later, he was living in the uh, motion picture country hall. Okay. I wasn't exactly clear about the reason for him being being there. Some story had it that he attended Expo 67, but I don't know that that was true. But I'm yeah. trying to find out whether that was true or not. I know that Dave was there in 1968. 
Mm-hmm. And then um, did you somehow get to ask him about the Rudolph show, the special that he, or the cartoon that he did no. there? Or no, nothing? I okay. Two years later, but I've got, okay. I've got an internal story about that, though, by the way. Okay. Well, first of all, Montgomery Ward was the original owner of that property. Right. And the cartoon was produced as a warm-up to children to go in to see, see the Santa Claus. So they built a little theater for children, and they would run the cartoon. Mm-hmm. So that there would be shifts where the kids would come in every seven minutes just to keep them from standing in line. <laughs> but there were a lot of restrictions about trying to maintain the, the style of the the illustrations in, in the book, which were kind of primitive. And uh, Mr. Handy was very proud of it, you know, it was this, this Technicolor cartoon and so forth. But by for 1947 standards, it was rather primitive. Yeah. But it's interesting in the fact that the backgrounds were done by um, one of uh, Max's background painters. Actually, it was made in New York. Hmm. And Max was back and forth between Detroit and New York. He lived in um, Detroit in the uh, um, one of the residential hotels downtown, the Seward, which was in Grand Circus Park, and rode the, uh, the streetcar up and down, which was close to where Jan Handy was. But he was back and forth to New, New York because the uh, train station was nearby. <clears throat> but uh, Rudolph was made with the crew in New York, and uh, it was made uh, again about a year later when the uh, the record came out. But the original version had Silent Night as the open and closing. And then when the Gene Autry record was a hit, they sang the song and they had a re-release of it in 1948. Hmm. But the internal story of it was that Mr. Handy was so proud of that that every year at their Christmas party, it was mandatory that they would have a screening of this, you know. <laughs> and they would always have this corny cutout of the reindeer with the Christmas tree red bulb that was blinking on and off and so forth. And the employees, they would go to it, you know, obligingly just to sit through it. But Bob Kennedy told me that you don't want to show that to me again. <laughs> You're not going to make me sit through that. I said, Bob, I wouldn't do that. It's, it's quaint and everything like that for what it is. But to be honest with you, it's it, it's kind of primitive for the time. Yeah. But when well, but when Max left in '51, he sent Mr. Handy a, a a letter saying that I don't really feel that my services are being used to their fullest, and his his uh, career went full circle because he was preparing for his lawsuit, and he returned to Bray in his original position as production manager while while he was preparing his lawsuit. So he went back to New York and was getting ready for the lawsuit, which happened in 1955. And that's when uh, Gene Deich came in. Hmm. And the arrival of Gene Deich was heaven sent for them because just like everything else, animation budgets were slashed in 1948 because of the consent decree, because the cartoons are no longer subsidized off from the movie package. So the cartoons had to be financed on their rentals alone. So that's why the budgets were slashed. Mm. And so when theatrical budgets were slashed, then the clients who wanted animation, they said, well, we're not going to pay such high prices for these. 
And so they had to look for economical means. And that's when the limited animation was catching on. Mm -hmm. And then too, the high concept design oriented um, animation was, was really big in advertising. And so they wanted to be hip with those types of thing with modern art and everything. And that's what Gene Dyche was able to bring to them. And he's pretty much saved their animation department in that because they were able to produce things that were cost effective and uh, they, they were attention getting and they helped sell the products. And they were still talking about him after he'd been away for 15 years. Right. <laughs> hmm. And, uh, but by that time, what they were doing were what I cited um, imitations of Ernest Pentoff cartoons, <laughs> which I didn't care for, but it was a learning experience. And so mm -hmm. I, I, I was just happy to be there. And uh, that experience was where it was like the old studio system. You learned every job. So I yeah. started out just like in the old studio where I painted cells. I inked. I learned to operate the Ozolid copy machine. Mm -hmm. I assisted in the camera room. I sometimes shot animation. So anything they asked me to do, I was happy to do. Or if I assisted a certain animator or something like that and so forth, I was happy to sit in there and work with them. And that's <laughs> how I picked up these stories. <laughs> and then too, um, some people may know the name Rudy Zamora from the, the credits. Right. Yeah, he was of Mexican descent. He was from Pontiac, Michigan, which is where I live, by the way. Now I live in Pontiac, Michigan now. Well, Rudy stopped in one, one summer and Rudy's son, Rudy Jr. was working there in the same department with me. Rudy ended up being a film editor for a while. Well, Rudy was about two years older than me. And apparently Rudy must have married late in life or something like that because by that time he was old enough to have grandchildren, but his son was of my generation. So one day, even though it was walking distance, Rudy had this late model T-Bird convertible. Mm -hmm. So we rode up to the Latin Quarter for lunch. And he said, do you want to go up to the Latin Quarter for lunch and watch B.B. King rehearse? I said, yeah. <laughs> we went up there for lunch. And on the way out, the department manager, Bob Kennedy, saw us coming out. So I got back to work. He called me into the office. I said, do you have a good lunch? And he said, yeah. He said, was that interesting being there? He said, yeah. He said, don't do that again. <laughs> Midwest paper and accounting. She would pick me up at 4.30 in the afternoon. He said, if your mother caught you coming out of there, she might not let you work. <laughs> because you know you're underage. And they signed a paper that fudged it a little bit because I wasn't quite 16. <laughs> I had just turned 16 after they signed me on. <laughs> But you see, they, they thought I was considerably older, so we just kept our mouths shut about that. So I said, I wasn't realizing that. He said, well, don't do that. I said, I won't do it again. <laughs> but the thing that was funny was that Rudy thought he was something of a card shark and would get into these, these poker games. And Mr. Handy was a Christian scientist. And so uh, they had to cut that stuff out too. And uh, Rudy later on decided he was going to be a, a card dealer at 
in Las Vegas. So uh, he went up there and did that for a while. But I caught up with him about a year or two after I was, well, right after I was film Roman, and Gunther Wall was starting up. And one of the animators there, one of the designers, Dan Haskett. I didn't know that Dan Haskett knew who I was because he was upstairs. But Dan Haskett knew who I was. And he recommended me because of my line, my line work, I guess. And they were looking for a good animator's cleanup line on their storyboards. And so he gave my name to Rudy Zamora. And they gave me the number. I said, Rudy Zamora, is he still around? <laughs> and so this voice sounded a little too young. And so I went over there and it was Rudy Jr. I said, oh my God. I never thought that my experience at Jam Handy would mean anything. But twice it, it happened. It happened the first time when I was hired at Film Roman in the commercial division because the commercial director is from Detroit. And for a half hour, we talked about Jam Handy and not anything about what I'd done. And that's how I got hired. <laughs> and the second time was when I ran into Rudy Jr. Hmm. Oh. <laughs> so never underestimate your background. Even though when I went out to the West Coast, I had the realization what I did back there means nothing to them. And I didn't, I didn't flaunt that background. Yeah. Little did I know this was going to happen. So, like I found out very early in the business, you never know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never know when that call is going to happen. Mm -hmm. So, as it was, it took about maybe two years to get into the system, and my reputation got around and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then I would get calls, and it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. And so that yeah. happened for 17 years. Mm -hmm. And then I think I, this is in all the places you work, but you work for Fred Wolf. You work for MGM, you work for Nickelodeon and right. things like that. So, you know, I guess it was a good career at that time, correct? At that time, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I've heard horror stories after those years. So, well, I've yeah. had some problems yeah. too, but um, yeah. uh, the, the thing is, though, that I was always nervous. I'll, I'll tell you something. Um, I've had a slight problem with um, dyslexia. And I found that working with animation actually helped me get around that because you're working with spatial relationships. That's why I sometimes had difficulty doing in-betweens. Mm. I could do them, <laughs> but I had a problem sometimes with the lines switching back and forth in my brain. Yeah. But I just kept working at it and working at it and working at it. And I finally got so I could succeed at it. I didn't really like doing it, but it was a job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, apparently, I my work was acceptable because I worked for two years on the character, the Flintstone characters on their commercials at Playhouse, mm -hmm. and that I enjoyed. And again, this this was my good luck charm that pencil that uh, that Bernie Wolf gave me. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I don't want to keep you too long. We've already talked for well over an hour, closer to well, two. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> because, story. Yes, exactly. So I didn't interrupt you. I let you tell it. But um, uh, at this point, the, basically, um, I don't really have any more urgent questions that might go on for another hour about something else. <laughs> so um, usually how I wrap up the show, and I can have you back on the show, so it's not a problem. But um, basically, what are you currently working on? What would you like to promote? Uh, and if you're making any personal appearances or anything like that? Well, uh, on the 23rd of July, I appeared on the panel for uh, Jane Fleischer Reads 
roundup and restoration project of the Max Fleischer films. And what they're trying to do is locate in the best possible quality what remains. And as you can imagine, I said before, finding anything from 100 years ago is a real chore. <laughs> I've been through it, you know, I've been doing this for 55 years. But that they are doing and going to archives, and we've had a lot of um, tremendous cooperation from archives from around the world, mm -hmm. and a lot of people that are coming forward with assistance and that sort of thing. And we're going to be making another appearance in New York at the New York Comic Con coming up the weekend of uh, October 8th. So I'll be on that panel too. Yeah. And um, I'm kind of giving them immoral support <laughs> by being there. So that I'm doing, and I provided some material. So that's what I'm doing. I'm supposed to be retired, but I'm still <laughs> working. Yeah. And I, I've been uh, buying and selling homes, restoring them, and buying rentals and fixing them up and sending, selling them. And I'm not sure whether I'm going to sell this one in two years, but I recovered from a fire in April in my garage. So I have a new, new garage by my design. So that I'm happy about. And coming from a building family, I've had some exposure. <laughs> so, uh, and again, I've had that to fall back on, even though filmmaking is a different process altogether, but it's still construction, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that makes me happy too. Very good. And um, you're still doing all the um, Inkwell images, uh, releases and everything like that too? Well, or? we're still selling those. And then we're going to have our 25th anniversary coming up next year. And there may be some surprises okay. coming up for next year. And one of the problems is the fact that I had to shut down everything suddenly in June of 2008 because I had a family emergency. My mother had six months to live. And my parents were living on a rural acre. They had a, a, a farm they were running. And I had to go back. And my father developed dementia after my mother died, it accelerated. So I ended up being his caregiver for 11 years. And so he would have been 100 last year. Wow. But uh, he passed away at age 98 in November of uh, 2019. Mm -hmm. So for about 10 years, um, Inkwell Images was pretty much inactive, but I wanted to have a new release because we hadn't released anything in 10 years. I had sold the company to another fellow in 2016, and I wanted to come out with our first Blu-ray, which was Toby the Pup. And I had an uh, agreement with uh, Serge Bromberg over a period of seven or eight years, and we were waiting for the scan for the soundtrack on the first one, the museum. And when I found out that um, they finally had that, then we went forward with that as our first release. But I was not directly involved with that. There were some problems on that initial Blu-ray. And because the new president of the company was not performing to expectations, the stockholders had a, a uh, emergency meeting and reinstated me as president. I bought back the stock. I straightened out the problems and I also corrected the problems on the Blu-ray. So that is the official story about what happened on that initial Blu-ray that was an embarrassment, which has since been corrected. 
And based on that, we are going forward with uh, digital scans. Very good. And then you said you're going to do an update to the art and inventions of Max Fleischer. When should that be done? <laughs> it's a little premature right now. Okay. But I'm, I'm very happy that it's been selling so well. I just can't believe that I have 36 five-star ratings on Amazon alone and uh, four excellent reviews from professional book reviewers. So that's quite uh, gratifying as well because when I started out doing this, it, it's not like I consciously did this expecting that it's going to be excellent, but I didn't set out to do a bad job either. Yeah. It was just a consciousness flow of what I was seeing. And I'm going to tell you something based on the story that I told you when I wrote, wrote the last chapters mm -hmm. and based on what I figured out, it was so tough for me to write that I had to get up and walk away from it for a day <laughs> to figure out how am I going to tell us because it is just so heartbreaking. And here's another thing too that I'm very fortunate about. And I think this is one thing that sets me apart. I had to be very frank about this. It's taken some time, but I have talked to everybody in the Fleischer family and it's taken years to cultivate that relationship and to garner their trust. They're very gracious people, very generous. Mm -hmm. And by getting to know them, it also gave me insight to understanding the people. Mm -hmm. Most of them did not understand what was going on through the studio. Dave's sisters sort of knew, and they told me some things, some things of which um, I, I've um, they, they, they asked me to keep confidential, but it gave me an understanding of certain things that were told in confidence. But by doing that, we, you, you gain greater understanding about what was going on. But um, what I wanted to do is do something more than just a clinical review. In 1914, he invented the rotoscope. And in 1924, he invented the bouncing ball. All of that is superficial and it's cold facts. And you want to go beyond that. People want to know what was behind this? What caused this? What inspired them to do this? What made these people tick? Yeah. And the people said, all these people have been writing these things about the Fleischer brothers and nobody asked us. Well, guess <laughs> what? I did. Cool. <laughs> yeah. And probably one of the best sources, like I said, was Joe Fleischer because he kept the journal. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, and by the way, can I find it? <laughs> no. Can I find it? <clears throat> <laughs> Joe gave me a paperweight. Which, All these souvenirs. <laughs> I've, got, I've got so many papers on it. Maybe we better save it until the next time. But Joe gave me a paperweight that yeah, was you could just describe it. Yeah, made out of the uh, the chrome letters that were on the, the Miami studio. Oh, cool. I, I have it over here, but it's holding down papers. And maybe we can save that for the for the next podcast. That's fine. All right. Well, that'll be the next show and tell. Yes. <laughs> and um, we'll leave it at that. But it was a pleasure talking with you, Ray. And, you know, I'm always fascinated with animation history. I, I always 
uh, or I should say, I never claim to know it all. I mean, what I know usually is from what I absorb in these books like yours and everything else like that. Well, here's something uh, else too, because it's ongoing. Yeah. Way back when these blogs were getting started and everything like that, you know, everybody was was admiring about all this this ancient animation history. And I told a lot of them that I was originally mentoring that there's animation history past 1950. Yeah. You need to start looking at that and start documenting that. Yeah. And some of them started doing that. You know, as a matter of fact, somebody has started posting on YouTube some of the original original interstitials, interstitials, like that's that new word that I can't pronounce. <laughs> we used to call them snipes. Hmm. Anyway, um, interstitials on the original Huckleberry Hound show, which I originally saw in 1958. Right. Uh, most of them were done in color, but they were broadcast in black and white. And they were very imaginative and they were medium to full tilt animation. As well as some of the commercials, the commercials were full animation. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some of those. Uh, our mutual friend Stu Shostak showed some recently on his show, and yeah, it's very full animation compared to what you're used to—just the bobbing heads on Hanna-Barbera cartoons. So, you so know. a lot of that stuff, uh, the the TV animation history. Yeah, that needs well, that, to be gone that's, into. And that stuff that, is, is old. That's what I try to do because, you know, I figure you got the Fleischer stuff covered. Jerry Beck has a lot of stuff covered. Other authors have stuff covered. Well, you know, just, I, I go on the next, the, the yeah, next I'm not just thing, you know. On, <laughs> I'm like, not just focused on that either. Yeah, but yeah. I, I saw the whole development of Hanna-Barbera and I went through that excitement of seeing what's going to happen this year. How much better do they get and so on and so forth. And right. I saw that whole thing. And fortunately, there are a lot of credible people up there that come up with some amazing stuff that I don't know how they gained access to it, but I'm glad that they did. Right. Because they're representing it well. As a matter of fact, there are people outside of that mainstream that have done a better job than the two books that have been put out, which I don't think were very, very well researched. They really don't have much content. Yeah. And if I have another opportunity, I'll tell you my Bill Hanna story. Okay. I'll have to bring you back for that. That's the yeah, teaser. That's, right. that's the teaser. <laughs> all right. Oh, yeah. So anyway, I'll I'll wrap up the show on that note. And um, again, it's a pleasure having you, Ray. Um, very big wealth of knowledge <laughs> and experience. So uh, I always enjoy that. And uh, that wraps it up for another Fun Ideas podcast. And we will see you next time. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that because it's my bedtime. Hey, we'll have a good night. <laughs> Have a good night's sleep. Good night. <laughs> thank you for listening, and thank you, Ray Pointer, for being my special guest. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 184 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.